Paul, you are the first ever pirate to be on my podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> I love that. There's so many cool things uh, we want to dish into, Paul. I want to respect your time and dive right in with you because your story needs to be told to every single person in the design and construction industry without exception. We need to hear what's going on. It's time for us to wake up, Paul, and I think you're just the right one to splash just the coldest amount of water it's not quite freezing but the shock will get us to pay attention oh, philippe they, you, you're, you're very kind your 20 dollars check is in the mail for saying all those nice <laughs> things and uh you know i loved when we were coming on to this riverside fm studio because it said you know please check your hair and i have i have exactly one hair so it was a perfect <laughs> way of just entering this entire conversation going these guys get it Welcome to the EBFC Show, the easier, better for construction podcast. I'm your host, Felipe Engineer Manriquez. This show is all about the business of construction. This episode is sponsored by Bosch Refine My Site is a cloud-based construction collaboration platform that applies lean principles to enable your entire team to plan, communicate, and execute in real time. It's the digital tool that works in tandem with your last planner system process and puts it all together in one simple collaborative ecosystem. This easy-to-use platform is available in English, German, Spanish, Portuguese, and French and can be used on desktops, tablets, and mobile devices. According to Spencer Easton, Scheduling Manager at Oakland Construction, Refine My Site, in my opinion, is the best, leanest tool on the market for the last planet. Here's what our users have to say. We've looked at three other digital scheduling platforms and none compare to the straightforward approach Refine My Site takes. From milestone planning all the way down to daily tasks, this program gives every general contractor and their trade partners meaningful collaboration, accountability, and KPIs. Register today to try Refine My Site for free for 60 days. Today's episode is sponsored by Construction Accelerator. The design and construction industries come up with and build great things, but we also build in waste in how we do those things, in our interactions, in our contracts, in our logistics. So what does this do for our bottom line or our next project? The best firms maximize their value by removing that waste and only doing what's essential to the work, what makes them money. Construction Accelerator will train you to see the waste and give your teams the lean tools and experience to remove it immediately. All online, Construction Accelerator is made up of three to nine minute videos that can be watched again and again in the field, at the office, and at home, all broken down by topic. Need to learn pool planning? We have videos on the process, how to set up a room, and how to kick off a team. Need to set up a target value delivery project? We discuss all the aspects of TVD, especially cost. Or maybe you just need to brush up on 5S. Well, we have videos on that as well. You can download and print reference materials to use on-site to immediately translate watching into doing. Subscribe today at tricanow.com. Let's build an industry, not just a project. Today's show is also sponsored by the Lean Construction Institute. LCI is working to lead the building industry and transforming its practices and culture. Its vision is to create a healthy and thriving industry that delivers outstanding project outcomes every time for everyone. Check the show notes for more information. Now... 
to the show. Thank you for the opportunity just to uh, you know contribute to the overall conversation that um, what I love about not only this time, but the marrying up of so many different great technologies to get the word out, right? Because it was one of these right. things where, uh, you know, way back in the day when... <laughs> When I was a pup, you know, we, the only way to get the word out was to either write for, you know, chapter newsletters in association, in industry associations, right? Um, maybe right. attend a chapter meeting or maybe get lucky enough to do a state presentation or maybe the national, you know, convention. Uh, and it was a very slow and arduous process. Now, a thought comes into your mind and it's Instagrammed out, it's tweeted out, it's done. And it's like the, the velocity of information um, is great. Uh, now, here's the key though. How do you filter out the stuff that's useful for you, right? Because what may be really interesting to, you know, a sole practitioner architect in uh, Kansas City uh, is going to have a lot different meaning when you're talking about the large, uh, you know, engineering firms, like let's say in Saudi Arabia, right? So, so right. there's this amazing time of, of a skill set of how to filter not just the marketing hype and the sales hype on, on, on you know, tools that can help us with our digital transformation, but how does that filter affect me? And that's really where we're at right now. And, you know, throw on top of that, you know, our, our latest little issue of a pandemic globally. Um, <laughs> yeah, a little tiny minor inconvenience. I tell you, um, it, it's now doing two big things in my mind, right? Number one, it's allowing us to think more strategically. Because BC, before COVID, we had this entire BCE, world. <laughs> before COVID ever, Paul. Oh, th th there you go. <laughs> so, Take that one, BCE. Love that. Stealing it. So, Steal so it. you know, we were so busy, right? I mean, great times to be in the business, but it was attack, 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 attack. You know, um, there was really a lot of folks then that were questioning, you know, well, we're doing it and we're making a lot of money, but are we doing the right thing? And that's what COVID brought to us is are we doing the right thing? Like, let's take a pause. Uh, and that's where, you know, the second big thing that came out of it was this this idea of not being afraid to use newer tools, right? And some right. of them are digital. Others are process-driven, and those are much more difficult, you know, as you know. Um, but when the two come together, that's where magic happens because, you know, having been on the side of the software development side of things, uh, you know, sometimes I would go and, and go to, uh, you know, a customer and be amazed that they're using the technology that way. I'm like, we didn't even think about that. You know, it's like, <laughs> it was a discovery <laughs> session. Like, like we, we, we thought BIM was supposed to be used for this, but no, it's being used for that. You know? So yeah, it, it's quite the journey. Uh, but what a time we're living in Philippe. My background originally, I went to school for computer engineering before Y2K. Hmm. And then I was in school. Luckily, I had no chance of graduating before, and Y2K happened right in the middle. And I watched hundreds of thousands of people lose their jobs after Y2K. Pivoted because there were no more jobs for computer engineers at the time. And I went into electrical engineering. I had all of this computer science uh, training you know, and programming and all this heavy, heavy technology. And yet I went into construction and, and really did not know what to expect. A friend of mine had took me on a job, take, took me on a job. I got to see what they were doing. I saw the little bit of technology there. And I mean, it was a little bit, it was a little bit of technology. Like the, you know, computers were probably the most expensive thing on that project, but the job itself was a medical research building. 
And I was just, it was fascinating to see what's going on in a medical research building on a university campus. But the technology, you come out of that building and go into where the construction is being run, and it's like going into a time capsule. There were big <laughs> giant prints of paper with schedules that were out of date the second they were printed. There were people standing at fax machines waiting. There were stacks of paper of people doing handwritten daily reports. And there's just so much stuff happening in a very slow and unnecessarily painful way. <laughs> it just did not, it didn't line up with what it was. And at the time I was just so in it, like you said, Paul, without a pause for reflection, you just have to hurry up and go to work. That's it. You just have to get the work done. You don't have time to think about and pause. I, I, as, as horrible as COVID is, it also caused me to pause too. And uh, I would have met someone like yourself had it not been for the pause. So I appreciate that. Uh, there is a bright side to it, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, you know, and I think that that's where, you know, we've, we've got to move forward, right? The virus right. has not gone away. If anything, it's mutating. Yet, there's this optimism, again, because of, uh, you know, the idea that many people are choosing to get vaccinated, uh, which is creating now uh, a, a very interesting you know, way of trying to manage this thing. So, you know, we we were stopped uh, for a few days, actually. Once lockdown happened, we had to figure it out because it was global lockdown. That has never happened right. in the history of the planet Earth. Okay, so when they say First unprecedented, time. yeah, uh, you, you may say, say unprecedented, but COVID said, hold my beer. Um, <laughs> holy shit, right? Because now we're in this <laughs> this world where we have to be out on the site. That's what we do. Right. <clears throat> and you had this uncertainty. Now, the thing that I love uh, and welcome to the dark side of the construction industry. Uh, <clears throat> it is definitely a wild and woolly place. Um, but having pushed the boulder up the hill almost all my career, right, more or less on the Don Quixote type of quest, you know, a noble quest. But we're fighting windmills because when right. you're not showing the value of how that helps that individual, <clears throat> not the entire project, because really the only per person that cares about the entire pro project are a handful of people. Everyone else, to your point, comes, I want to do my work, grab it, you know, get home, grab a beer and watch the Yankee game. Well, that, that's what I want to do. And it, yeah. or, but, or the Cubs game. I mean, that's what I would do. Yeah, right. So, so like <laughs> everyone has their focus on, on what they want to do, yet there's this orchestra that they're playing in. And the best program and project managers that I see understand that you must focus in on the areas that may be weak. It may be the wind section, it may be the percussion, it may be the violins on that particular project. On the next project, you could have the violins being virtuosos, yet, you know, the wind section may be sucking it. So it's that constant balance of people skills. And when right. we start to take a look at, at, at when things, you know, locked down, people skills went through the roof. Right. Because you had to allow people to understand that some people were scared. Others were saying, how do I start to get back to work? Others were saying, if I get back to work, am I going to bring my, you know, this virus back to my family? It was just this immediate shock to the system of going right. And once the dust start, started to settle, uh, we also realized the variances uh, because, you know, we have a global footprint in how we work. Although we're a boutique firm, we have a pretty broad reach of of how we operate. What came screaming at us was that 
this is going to be something to be managed on a micro basis. This isn't going to be, hey, we're opening up as the world and everyone's going to get back to work because look at uh, you know poor India right now. They resisted for so long and then suddenly the virus hit them. You know, it, it, and this is where I think that you know our industry has a real opportunity to take merit to itself for the first time in a long time because we are doing more and more sophisticated type of buildings and infrastructure because of the demands of the market with less and less skilled people with budgets that are not improving. And you throw on top of that, that we are responsible in a way for our spaceship called planet earth, right? I mean, think about it just uh, like the way that I love what's going on with the privatization of space exploration, right? Where they're now affording people to really take a higher view that we are on a very fragile spaceship hurtling through space to who knows where. Because if people think we're just static in space and we're just revolving inside of our universe, that's not true. That universe is hurtling through space. So we're literally on a ship where we don't know where the destination is, if there is a destination, right? Which means that when we have an actor come into our spaceship and cause chaos, we must come together, right? Because this is humans against a virus. This isn't, you know, ideological crap and people are you know, coming up with conspiracy theory type of stuff, which is the other edge of all this great technology, right? Which can yes. exacerbate bad ideas just as fast as good ideas. And what we're finding is that it it's helpful for us internally to constantly remind ourselves that what we do every morning when we wake up is very noble. Because we're on a spaceship and the spaceship has to be taken care of, when people are saying we have to save planet Earth, Earth doesn't give a shit. Earth will always be Earth. Earth is going to do what it's going to do. What we're worried about, which is actually a good thing, is we got to watch out for the human species of making sure that that environment of the spaceship is good enough for us to continue on as a species. So this isn't about environmental mafia. Uh, you know, I, I don't hug trees because they don't hug back. Um, you know, this is about trying to do the right thing. And when I was going to school, architectural school, right, I love how, you know, everyone all of a sudden became woke and everyone has to have, you know, 15, uh, you know, letters after their name. Uh, because they understand that they have to, uh, you know, protect the environment. What were you doing before that? <laughs> when I went to school, that was called good design. Putting on a Superman cape and having a lot of letters after your name doesn't mean that that anything. I mean, the best thing that the Green Building Council did with LEED was that it got the average business person to understand that there's a value of what we do as, a, as, as an industry, which means that there are four things that we have to take care of as humans to survive. One, fresh air, clean water, safe food, and shelter. So as Bingo. if you are a plumber, sole practitioner plumber, to the largest mechanical contractor in the world, to people that develop for a living to exactly what you and I do, Philippe. If we, if we can wake up every morning and just understand, look in the mirror that what we're doing is a noble cause to keep our species alive, that's a higher calling. And it's not to get on a hyperbole thing because you can then start to take action every day without thinking about it. It's, it's instinctual. You know, uh, it's about keeping your job site clean because you're the subcontractor on there. And guess what? The reason why we put in the contracts that you should leave it at least swept clean we mean it. Yeah, Those it benefits them too. Exactly. And, right. and, 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 and it's, it's a it, great it incentive, Paul, for getting people to do what's helpful to them. And, That's you it. know, let's reward. It's that whole idea of rewarding good behavior. Yes. And I, I, I love that analogy you gave of the spaceship that we, we have. And, and our spaceship is a convertible. It's got like a skin thick <laughs> layer. There's not even a hard outer shell on it. 
And you're completely right. The people on the planet Earth sometimes get swept up into an idea because, unfortunately, Paul, sometimes bad ideas propagate. Without good curation of the data and information coming at you, you can get swept up in the noise and get far, far away from the signal that's telling you something. We are all on one single planet. We do all have to cooperate to survive. And living is a choice. So you're bringing up something that that resonates here, right? Where we have a responsibility as a, as a company with uh, TDG, with, with what we do. Yeah, we use a lot of magic and flash to make urban environments magical. Right. The average person does not care how the mechanics of this thing works. All they know is that they want to have a conversation or Nowadays, they want to be able to text message, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that, but that's the usefulness of the phone. But the technology behind that, and the absolute chaos that was made, unchaotic, so that a person could, could have a conversation on a piece of plastic, is unbelievable, right? That really is magic. If you right. brought anyone from the past thirty years forward, they'd be going, "What? You know, my my laptop doesn't do what your phone does, right?" Um, right. So I think that the ingenuity, the innovation of, of where we're at right now as an industry is one of the greatest times to ever be alive in our industry. We literally have an opportunity to not have the inherited conversations of the past control our future. And I think that's a really important thing about that inherited conversation because people will say, well, we've always done it like that. Well, what I right. love about the, this generation coming up is that they holistically are questioning things to say, what if? And I think that's the art of the possible, that our industry is now walking right through the threshold. They're not running because we're so conservative as a, as a holistic industry. But I'm watching enough Don Quixote's now attacking those windmills where I don't think the windmills stand a chance. I don't think so either. Paul, last night I had three students from San Jose State University keep me up until past my bedtime asking me questions on a Zoom call about where do I see the industry going? And they're going to have me come talk to an AGC student chapter group. Mm. It's part of what I do in my volunteer work for Bill California. Mm. And the I told them, I said, the enthusiasm and excitement that the three of you have for coming into this industry is infectious and it's necessary. And I said, when you come in, people, some people are going to discourage you from asking a lot of questions questioning why we do things the way we do. And I said, you call me anytime you have a day where somebody discourages you and I will re-encourage you because that's exactly what we need. If we're going to survive and continue to be useful and relevant, like you are in your industry as an architect and designer and a head of a, what I, a lovely boutique company. I love that description for the digit group, a boutique company. That's lovely. Your marketing skills, Paul, our next level. So I'm going to, I'm going to learn from you. I'm going to steal that. I'm going to say, this is a boutique podcast for people interested in making things better. And I, I but then you have to drink your coffee with your pinky out. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I will. Okay. Here, watch here. Let's see if I can, my left hand. There you like, go. You uh, got it down. You see Look it at now, this. right? Look at this. And there's the product placement policy. But, see, and, 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 and now, now you're teaching me. Look at that. Yeah. I you you got to be ready. <laughs> I've got that. That's the uncaffeinated. And then this is caffeinated in just a, you, know, you don't know what this is, Paul. You're double-fisted, man. That's, that's it's probably alcohol. <laughs> this time of morning, sometimes you need it. So, yeah, you know, one thing that being a realist, right, and having been a builder that became an architect, 
okay, which I think is the proper format of how to do it. Um, because <clears throat> if you, how do you design it if you don't know how it goes together? And I don't. That's been my question for twenty years. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I I came out of out of school and immediately I was uh, involved as a partner in a design build firm. I mean, I just thought that that was a natural way of going, but we realized that you can go through a five year professional degree as a, as an architect and never have stepped foot on a job site. Okay. See the yeah. issues right from the beginning. Last big project uh, where I literally had my boots on and my hard hat on every day was in the South Bronx in Mott Haven. Uh, it was a project that was funded by the New York Yankees, which I was very happy about, uh, because yeah. they got um, the approval to move Yankee Stadium across the street, but money had to be given back into the community. So I was responsible for putting up, uh, at, at the time, uh, the largest, uh, both budget-wise and size-wise, high school for the School Construction Authority of New York. And I took it with pride. Right. First of all, it was Mr. Steinbrenner's money, so always respect the capital. Right. Uh, but number two, it was a very, very complex project because it was four different high schools, chartered high schools. Uh, one was uh, for for the arts. One was for STEM, and you know, it, and was on a campus that was raised up above the Metro North tracks of coming out of the subway of Manhattan to go up into the suburbs of Westchester Main Line. I had to raise the foundation, or actually the start point up to the level of the Grand Concourse, because I went down 40 feet. So I had to build a series of trees. The reason I'm mentioning all that is that the complexities of just that, and this is, uh, you know, pre-having anything out in the field. I mean, it was a big deal getting a fax machine out to the job trailer, right? Um, <clears throat> you yes. know, let alone, you know, the stuff I was talking about, right? And the practicalities were this. When you're in charge of a large project like that, and you have so many different moving pieces of sequencing and the scheduling, watching the budget, watching the quality, the different teams that these companies would send. Uh, you know, you knew immediately if you had a bunch of rookies, you know, especially when you're pile driving, you know, yep. because they're asking you questions, you know, you shouldn't be asking me those questions, right? So, you know, automatically you get like these, these flags that go off because you have an instinct because you've been seasoned, right? And that's the big thing about the industry. You have to get people doing it, doing it, doing it, doing it. But here's the problem I saw. The processes, if I had the budget to actually do a process diagram of every single trade that entered onto that job site, I'm not talking about scheduling, I'm talking about the actual process diagrams. The amount of rework, redundant work, work that was used to sabotage either their own work in order to get more hours or to make sure a wink, wink, the guy, you know, be, behind me, we're in cahoots together because he's a painter. I'm a drywall guy, and I know that the drywall up, uh, you know, where I'm working on the upper floors, because you build up, as I'm coming down and the paint job's being done, if I happen to scrape the paint, quote unquote, by accident, well, that gets more work for my painter, and that's a nice change order. I mean, the stuff that you see out there, which is almost kindergarten level, you literally have to be half den mother, half parent, half buddy, colleague. I mean, you have to wear so many hats, and that's just one project in one geographic location. And now on the owner side of what we do as a developer, I was, I'm, I'm watching it worldwide in their own way. Inherently, people are going to protect what they feel is their gravy train, which is where people are going, why hasn't the industry digitized? And why haven't we gone through that transformation? Well, the bottom line is, have you asked the people if they want to change? This is a people business. Asked. Right. Yeah. You'd rather it have, does. you know, you know, coming right out of school, never swung a hammer. And I got this really cool app. And, you know, it, and, and they try and shove it in front of, uh, you know, venture capitalists and they think they're going to be a unicorn, become Procore, you know, like overnight. And you're going, do you have any clue what you're doing? Except I could criticize that. 
But do you know what I'm doing? And it's, I don't know if it's just old age or whatever, but I'm encouraging everyone because just the fact that you had three students that, that were inspirational, that provided their own energy and, and their own sense of wonderment of, well, why hasn't this been done? And we could make that difference. We need more of that. We need that sea change in the industry so that that boulder that I've been pushing up the hill, I want to be like Indiana Jones running away from that boulder as it's chased me down the damn hill. That's my dream in my career. Yeah. And the more that we can encourage folks, not just to say like wagging the finger, like this is an industry about experience. Because if you don't learn from experience, you can either get hurt for real, die hurt, right? right. Or financially hurt or not do the right thing for the planet Earth, which is do the right thing to make sure that that edifice that you're creating, either civil infrastructure or vertical buildings, is the best you can do because you're putting something in place that's going to outlive you. What's your higher calling? You know, is it that you cut corners and you were able to buy, you know, a little extra horsepower in that new car because you got over on the on the GC? Uh, I mean, think about what you're doing, right? And I also, I also don't mind the fact that we are hurting right now when it comes to qualified people working in the field. Um, I think it's almost like a forest fire. It's getting rid of, of a lot of the bad wood. Um, and you're hoping that this next generation that does come in, like the three students you were talking to, become that new growth that do have a different value of ethics and morals in that space. And also have a sensitivity about it, right? You know, uh, you know, there were certain times when, you know, I was uh, an intern architect where I go out in the field and literally volunteer with some of the local trades just to learn, you know, framing and painting and all this other stuff. And it's amazing to watch the uh, mental abuse that goes on in our industry. And it's one of those things a lot of people don't talk about, you know, the bullying, all that type right. of stuff that, you know, and a lot of it was attributed to, well, these are the ne'er-do-wells that in high school, they weren't going to go to college anyway, so why don't you get a job in the construction industry? We were a dumping ground for so many years. We can't be that anymore. The sophistication level of, again, more complex buildings, you know, same or limited budgets, not enough people, so the time scrunch. We're demanding a lot of our workers, and we can, you know, there's projects that can't afford, and I'm even talking about kitchen blowouts in a, in a suburban area. Take those kitchen blowouts. Guess what the number one thing that they use? Wood. You know what? I have to specify 24 karat gold because it's cheaper than wood today. So so you you can imagine, you know, instead of two by fours, I'm I'm specifying 24 karat, right? Um, <laughs> just, just, yeah, I got a friend that can't even get their fence fixed that blew over in a windstorm. Right. They have to wait. Like, they don't know if it's three months from now or six months from now. So I'm in the Memphis area. Right, uh, right smack in the middle of the country. Because of a lot of stimulus and, uh, you know, pent up demand, people are, you know, extending decks and putting in, blowing out kitchens and putting second floor dormers and doing all sorts of things because they have the money. But uh, the big thing here is either work has stopped, especially with the newer construction with new homes, right? And, and, and there's a lot of that in this area because of FedEx and whatever, we're a high growth area. It's amazing to watch these these exposed structures that for weeks the workers aren't there because they can't get the deliveries of the supply chain, you know, these wood stick built structures. But the big thing here now is that if you do get a delivery is that if you are in the security business, you're doing really well because there are armed guards watching the wood. There was so much theft 
going from one place to another because of the commodity price you know, going through the roof. I'm like, wow, humans are still humans, aren't they? You know, so. <laughs> Yeah. I feel like, like, like we could we could take the we could take Paul out of New York, but we can't take the New York Yankee fan out of Paul. <laughs> live in Tennessee now, so I mean it's going to happen. You have this philosophy about you where these hands and these human experiences are the only way to really learn for real, and I think that is so simple of a detail, but it's elegant. Mm. And I, I just want to just pause and just let there be some space for that. Because people undervalue firsthand experience so much. Like we have, you know, even people coming in with excitement into the industry or people that are already in the industry that, that haven't developed themselves in a long time because they have the arrival syndrome and they think that they're at the epitome of the top of where they're at, which is false. You're not at the top. Everybody can learn and firsthand experience is priceless. So I just want to thank you for, for doing that. If you don't mind giving a longer introduction of who you are, uh, I think it's going to blow people's minds yeah. <laughs> and they'll have the same respect and appreciation that I had for you in 10 seconds of listening to you speak. I'm a licensed architect, not a software architect. I'm a real one. Uh, I, I can still get sued, still hold my license. Um, and, but I did my work. Uh, I did work study uh, in college, meaning that I took off a semester and worked in the field and then went back to school. So I took a little longer, but I thought that that was a better pathway for my skill sets uh, because I did my work study at IBM uh, and IBM was the only technology company in the world that really touched the consumer for years and years and years. So, yeah, I'm really dating myself here, but I had the opportunity and I, I was blessed to be born in New York City where I could went to work for any of the big architectural firms being interned and done bathroom details for, for years, right? Um, or I chose IBM where I was the chief designer for setting up they're trade show booths. How cool, right? Yeah, um, super cool. And back then, it was like, you know, PS2 architecture and uh, OS warp, OS2 warp, uh, R6000s, AS400s, uh, token ring networks. I mean, everything that's now defunct, uh, I, <laughs> I touched. So that could be a really good measure that whatever I touch could go, you know, by the way, the dodo bird. But what I learned, though, was from the systems engineers and the computer engineers at IBM, because Armonk was was my home base headquarters, right? And I was setting up these trade show booths where I had to learn all this technology from the inside out. And I was really curious, almost like your students, right? Like I was like, this is really cool. This is like building a building, right? You know, you like you have the framework rack and the hard drive and the motherboard and 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 I learned it because I was being taught by the greatest of all time, the IBM engineers, right? And the fact that they, I, I used to do it after hours, right? Because I was going to school. Then I go into the uh, carpenters' union's uh, 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 factory, and these guys would come in and uh, from IBM and teach me uh, while they drank beer, because it was easy for them. But they, oh yeah. yeah, just do this and do that, and, and so I had to learn the software and the hardware from scratch. And I looked at it like looking at the suites catalog, going, okay. "Wow, you know, I need a door, I need a window, I need a foundation, I need this, I need a roof." Blah blah blah. Same thing with uh, with with computers. So I've never differentiated between the two. Actually, what was really frustrating was going, "Why do I need to put this into a chassis rack when I could stick a hard drive into the wall and my memory board could be the ceiling?" Like I could never understand how come we weren't building computers into or the computerization into the built environment, right? Uh, thus, smart buildings. Right? So, long story short. <laughs> Um, that taught me everything I needed to know uh, because at that point, technology became a fourth utility to me, plumbing, electrical, mechanical, and IT. 
Um, and I held that my career. Um, yeah, I uh, dropped out of school uh, for a while uh, uh, because I'm actually a keyboard player by profession. I'm a piano All player. Right. And uh, we got signed to Warner Brothers Records in the 80s. Uh, we were the house band at the China Club in Manhattan. Uh, we were a fixture down uh, in uh, in. Greenwich Village, uh, places like the Bitter End and Kenny's Castaways and all these places. Uh, but we we made a record. Um, it did extremely well in Europe. Um, and uh, I got to play with some of the greatest uh, you know musicians in the world. Uh, uh, David Bowie's band came down one night and I got to jam with them. Uh, of course, uh, them being all African-American and me, the white guy, the one song they chose was Play That Funky Music, White Guy. True story. <laughs> True story. So, uh, yeah. And I got to play with, uh, uh, you know, some some other artists that I would never have had the chance. And I'm in like my early 20s. Um, so we did extremely well. Uh, like, like I said, we were a part of Neat Records, which is a uh, we were distributed through Warner and we kind of made it. I decided to go back to school uh, when things started to slow down with the band. Um, but that experience of being out on stage as a professional and really making it. Uh, we were up for best music, uh, ni 1987 into 88. We were up for best band of the year, best male vocalist and best song of the year. We lost to Billy Joel, They Might Be Giants and Taylor Dane. So, wow. yeah. so we, we were close, right? And as an architect, it was just so cool because my thesis at school was architecture as frozen music, where I took the ratios of how you can move through uh, music, uh, e either through time, you know, three, four time, four, four time. Um, and then the elegance of the spatial relations of how you can move between treble and bass clef. And what I did was I used those ratios and I studied uh, the Baroque period using Baroque music and then the architecture of its time. The ratios were perfect. Uh, we then went into uh, the turn of the last century using uh, the Rite of Spring, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, uh, and uh, Le Corbusier. And they were perfect. And then uh, we fast-tracked it to Richard Meyer's work, uh, and we tied that together to uh, Talking Heads. And it was perfect. That music, uh, architecture is frozen music. It's just about how you express it. The movement through space, the movement into spatial relations, which leads to you know a fast track where because of my computerization stuff, I knew how to write code. Um, so that helped with music because I was involved with MIDI, which connects everything together on stage. I then transposed that uh, when, when I went back to school and graduated and started working with design build firms. Um, and we uh, we were a web-based organization, web-based organization in 1994 out in Long Island, New York. Because of the traffic, I used compact luggables and used Lotus Notes at first to connect my teams together instead of me driving out to the places, right? Now we got FaceTime. Right. You know, it's easy. But back then, <laughs> that, that, that was a heady thing to try and do, except that I, I discovered the web browser and... Um, uh, I tore Lotus Notes out, and we were web-based in 1994. We had some architects uh, and some influential architects along Long Island take a look at what we were doing as a design-build firm, and they encouraged me to start talking about it, uh, AIA conferences, things like that. And I got to write a book, this one, called Cyber Places. Then I got pulled into a little company called Revit I've heard uh, and of that. created uh, this thing called Building Information Modeling. Um, we then also created a web-based project management system called Buzzsaw. Uh, and then we created a facility management package called Tririga. Uh, between those three, uh, we made for our investors a little under a billion dollars uh, through acquisition. Uh, so Sand Hill Road loved what I was doing. Plus, I was a book author. Plus, we were doing something really cool, right? So my career fast-tracked. Uh, 
Um, I did do uh, some time because I wanted to polish where I became a Fortune 500 uh, officer for a company called Cahavnanian Homes, uh, where I really learned polish about how to be a corporate, understanding Wall Street, which then gave me the opportunity to pull all that together uh, just about 12 years ago to create TDG, uh, along with just an amazing cast of characters because of the success we had. One guy is my chief software architect. His name's Remy Arnault. Uh, he's the guy that helps me through thinking through the strategic vision of technology. Uh, his claim to fame is that he was the uh, he was the developer and founder of a group called Intrinsic that was part of the keyhole rollup when they were acquired for Google. You know it is Google Earth. So the father of Google oh. Earth is my chief software architect. That's um, incredible. So just just to tie this up and why it would be important to hear where we're going from here. Me decided that because we sold Revit to Autodesk, we sold Buzzsaw to Autodesk, we sold Tririga to IBM. <laughs> My friend's at IBM again, right? Um, <laughs> we're on to something big with Remy. Uh, I was living in Shanghai at the time uh, because we had a really good vis uh, 3D visualization company and they're really good in China with doing that type of stuff, photorealism, that type of thing. Um, and I wanted to take it to the next level by not just having it as a point like in 3D Max where you just fly around in space, but I wanted to have it geospatially perfect, a latitude and a longitude somewhere on a digital globe, right? Because we were being hired by groups like the Chinese Olympic. Their committee was looking for marketing material of flying through Beijing for the 2008 Olympics. Then we also got contacted by the people that were operating the, the uh, World Expo in 2010 in Shanghai. They also wanted to have marketing materials of because our stuff was so visually stunning and the way that we could produce it where we weren't putting you know a camera on a hyperactive dog like most architects and running around like a bunch of lunatics we actually had hollywood folks that knew how to produce so we came up with this really cool thing called a gaming engine 2008 so this is pre unreal and pre unity and we did it ourselves and i said whoa whoa because i was pulling in revit models and not one but thousands with zero latency. And I'm going, oh, this is fun. Anybody that's ever touched a model is drooling right now. <laughs> yeah. Zero latency is like a dream. Well, this was it. And we had a big choice. We could either create a proprietary application, not even an app, or we could use the browser. And the thing was, Remy, uh, his other side job is that he runs a standards group out of Silicon Valley called Kronos Group. They're the people behind Collada, WebGL, all these standards to make the browser the true interface and start the standards process so that manufacturers then can can compete on speed and just all those things that, that go on in the browser world, right? But this whole world was then opened up to me and I felt, well, I could barely move the needle again. I mean, we're trying to move the needle and try and make a difference with all these tools right. that we've created for the uh, industry. Yet to this day, the majority of people still use BIM to create 2D construction documentation. What? The, the, what? what are we doing? And, and they, print, they print it out too on paper. Well, it, it, okay, with certain people, that may yes. be the thing that you have to do, but you're right. That is yeah. now the thing that is very frustrating. So we did two things. Number one, we decided to keep it as a proprietary technology and that we would go headlong into being a real estate developer. And that then turned into us finding a lot of great innovation because we were doing things differently. We just weren't about taking dirt and moving it. We were about taking that dirt and enhancing it with innovation. And that's where the word smart cities came from because we partnered up with IBM again, where they had a program called the Smarter Planet, Smarter Cities, Smarter Building Program. Uh, that then turned into us being introduced to their friends over at Cisco that were also on a rampage of the smarter communities. And Philippe, if I had planned this, I'd be a genius, but I'm just Irish and I'm lucky. 
because this has been a tidal wave like I've never seen before of the urbanization of the earth coming together with the starting of this generational change of digital transformation where people are understanding instinctively that it's about the data, not the software, that people also are sensitive at this time to the human centric needs. And this is where I have a challenge for every designer out there. Um, I'm hiring these designers now, the largest names possible, because I'm on the owner side of the table. Um, we are very, very fortunate to have a 50-50 partnership with a Middle Eastern sovereign wealth fund. So we're able to pick and choose our projects that have impact on either parts of the planet Earth or the human culture and species holistically by proving an example in a step-by-step -step manner. Uh, this isn't about snapping my finger and saying how great we are and the Wizard of Oz is behind the curtain. Um, we're very transparent about how we're doing things, but I am an absolute stickler because I've been in the, in the foxholes with subs, with GCs, with other types of stakeholders, especially the financial folks that think, you know, you know, surety and bonding and all that stuff. No, 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 no. Let's have a conversation. But where I really have an impact is with the designers, both the engineers and architects, because I can speak their language. I also understand their frustration, but I also understand that they've been practicing wrong their entire career, all of them. And the reason why is because they're not designing with all senses. They're designing for visualization. The fact that we're still talking about digital twins and visualization, I'm going, that conversation happened in the manufacturing industry like 20, 30 years ago. Just because you discovered it doesn't mean that it's a new thing. You know, let your ego go at the door because all you're talking about is visualization. As a real designer, the next level of how you design is sound. How come we have not created multimedia BIM at this point is just beyond me. It's a natural oh. course of action because there, there was a great exercise that one of my uh, architectural uh, professors gave uh, when I was at school where he turned off the lights during one of the sessions and he said, close your eyes. And at the time he had a cassette recorder and he played different sounds. And one of the sounds was you could hear, you know, clicking of heels as it came closer to you. And he goes, define where that is. And I rose my hand and I said, sounds like a, a European cathedral. He goes, why? And I said, the hard surfaces, the volume of space. And he goes, you're exactly right. He goes, design involves all senses. So when I go to a ribbon cutting ceremony, here's another sense that just baffles me. You may have won all these awards and you're there with your wingtip shoes and you're all full of yourself because it is a good design visually, but functionally, when you start walking through the space, may not be at a hundred percent, but okay. It would look really good for that architectural record, you know, you know, cover photograph. But when I'm sitting there and, and you're snipping the, uh, you know, the ribbon cutting, all I'm doing is I'm choking on the VOCs because the off-gassing of the carpet hasn't stopped. Smell. Smell right. is the strongest trigger for memory. And all I remember from these grandiose places is it smells bad. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's like, why don't we design to smell? Not to say that we have to pump in artificial smells, but understand your materials for smell, understand your materials for sound, understand spatial relations for visual. And how come we have not put that into our computers to allow the computer to do what it does best, which is compute and give us those alternatives, including text, texture, touch, you know, the fact that we have crash bars for exits, for emergency exits, and they're all based on metal. Is that the right material? Who thought about that? Is it just for durability? Or are you thinking just with, uh, you know, what are you thinking? We've got to start designing holistically.
and not just about, you know, some crap about the next checklist of is it sustainable or not? Guess what? How about sustainable of good quality design? Uh, you know, before you start saving the spotted owl, start saving the, the, the human species. Um, I think one of the great things that's come out of this pandemic is certain certain firms' response. And one of those is a group called Delos. Uh, they're the ones behind the Wellness Institute. And what's amazing is to watch the money that they're uh, getting from investors, where uh, like on CNBC and Bloomberg and all these business TV shows, at least once an hour, I see these celebrities like Lady Gaga and, and, and other notable uh, figures that are endorsing buildings that have the wellness sticker on their doors because they've gone through the process of understanding indoor air quality, uh, uh, safety factors, those type of things that it's safe to come into this building. And that's what I think, you know, where we're going. I think it's so clever. And what timing for those people, right? Because it's scientific, yet you're hitting the basic need of, do I trust this building or is the building going to harm me? And this is well beyond Legionnaire's disease and all this other stuff. This is this virus and its mutating strains and other pandemic type of things are going to reside in our urban environments and inside of the spaces that we create because they will find their way in. Again, they've invaded our spaceship. So it's up to us to better understand how do we start to make sure that our mechanical systems are not the same old, same old. It's not like the past building. You don't do save right. as. You've got to don't now copy start to paste. Do, you can't do that. You can't do that because here's a for instance. So we did a study because of indoor air quality because it affects us, right? I want people back in my buildings. I have to create a trust relationship. And sometimes you have to be very transparent about what you've done. And what we did was we took a look uh, at some of our buildings that are in downtown areas. And then we took a survey of the downtown area. Um, what I discovered and this is something for every architect and engineer to think through from here on out. I don't know how we fix it, but most fresh air intake is at the street level. And you wonder why your building is sick. By 2 p.m., the amount of carbon, the, the, the amount of toxins in the air that's being sucked into your fresh air intake, I don't care what you have in your air handling unit, you're poisoning your building just by the simple placement of your fresh air intake. So let's be smart and put it up where the pollution is not. And maybe that's step one. It's a baby step, but you know, who am I? But yeah, baby steps. There's a lot of things that I think we have. Uh, we don't have any time for improvement, but the, but it has to be done. So we can't look back right. and start, you know, shaking hands, going, you know, okay, boomer, bad boomer, you did bad design all this time. Or we can say, you know what? Here's here, here here's the cards that we've been dealt. Let's move forward and let's start, you know, just cutting this thing down because we're on cow paths right now. Yet the world is expecting a motorway. So we got to quickly get up to speed. I think, you know, people like yourself that come from outside the industry are invaluable because you bring that different perspective that can create a fusion of a collision of industries rather than a catastrophe. And I liken it to where what we do, and we do it all the time about how we explain to either our, our investors uh, or our customers, is that when we create our urban environments, uh, we look at all of our innovations, be they digital innovations or not. Uh, they can be processed, they can be a piece of equipment, you know, that type of thing. We have a cupboard full of those. Our job is to have the proper sous chefs involved to pull the right types of ingredients to create the recipe and not just for one table in the restaurant, but make it a cuisine so that we do have the, our ability to constantly have a continuous innovation cycle that continues to populate or to improve those ingredients so that we can have a French restaurant, an Italian restaurant, Mexican 
taco stand if you want. Um, so there's different ways of creating those recipes that you never do the same recipe twice because everyone is unique and it's based on the human way of looking at their issues as a systems approach. Um, so we like to use terms like heterarchies, which are taking a visual look at different layers of need. Uh, in certain cases, it may be education is the lead. It could be healthcare. It could be safety. But as you start to prioritize those layers, they all have to work together. And that's where the magic happens. And that's what we do, which is we create an, an, an ontology, which is a way of connecting vertically those 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 horizontal systems. And that's where the magic happens. That's why, you know, when I was living in Shanghai, right after Chinese New Year, there was always a big influx of farmers, so sometimes with their families that would come into a big city like Shanghai looking for work because they are continuing to mechanize their food supply chain for safety and for quantity in such a great way that they don't need as many farmers, but people still have to work and can and make money. Right. So you have these people co literally coming from rice paddies out in the Western provinces to the equivalent of New York City in Shanghai. And inevitably, they would be future shocked. I remember one family of four staring at this modern entrance where people in suits would walk and the doors would magically open and then close behind them. And they're like, how does that happen? Right. To you and I, that's instinctive. You know, of course that happens. It taught me a lesson about, you know, you can bring enough magic in place to not future shock or, or scare people where they don't want to use it. Um, here's a case in point. We, we designed and we developed and implemented a series of uh, autonomous vehicles for public transportation. It's, it's implemented in China. And what we're doing there is testing out the different behaviors because uh, we have a very simple level one uh, autonomous vehicle program where we use the equivalent of buses, but they're gorgeous. Um, and we use 20 meter bus for longer, like almost like suburban commutes. We have a 12 meter bus, which is what everyone has today in downtown areas. But ours are beautiful. The other ones are ugly. Um, and they are ugly, aren't they? I mean, buses by themselves, like, who the hell? Like, yeah. like, like, I've, like I've you didn't like ask a, a designer a handful, to come in? handful of bus trips in my life, and I tried to avoid them because of that. Yeah, it's an awful experience. But then we also have these two-meter personal buses, which give the last mile, first mile solution, which is really, really cool. So we layer those. What we found is people love the little personal pods, right, the two-meter, <laughs> because it reminds me of being on a Disney ride. It's fully autonomous. They feel like they're in control. This is cool. The 20-meter bus, no problem, because do you really ever see a train conductor? Ever? No. Right? So they just think it's like a train. People freaked out on the 12-meter bus because it's open, right? Like like everyone can see everything, and they didn't see a driver. And how is this thing moving? It's 12 tons of steel. And I, 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 we literally, and we manufacture these in Beijing with our partner, Photon, Photon had to put a fake steering wheel and we had to hire a fake driver for our 12 new buses. Humans, <laughs> you know, yeah, humans. I think it's the same thing happens on the BART system in uh, San Francisco. There's a conductor on the train because people complained about the eeriness of getting into this metal box, racing under in tunnels and above ground. And don't freak out when you get on the BART and you don't see somebody. Don't freak out. I'm like, I see all these other passengers. They're like, yeah, but nobody's driving the train. It's like, oh my God, nobody's driving the train. <laughs> but then again, you know, when, when you're at Disney, who's driving the monorail? Right. Right. Yeah. So it, it's it, our expectations totally different, Paul. You are running at hands-on skin in the game. And you just said that we're doing continuous innovation, mm. whereas most design and construction uh, organizations out there, including on the owner side, I mean, people that are 
people spending over a billion a year in capital construction don't have a focus of even a 1% on innovation and change and just going into like, is my cupboard of tools fully stocked? Yep. Can I make something that people actually want? No, they're just doing rinse and repeat as if that's all that we need. And now when the pandemic hit, you saw a lot of uh, organizations are rethinking their their corporate offices. They're rethinking how we deliver healthcare. They're even rethinking how we deliver schools. And you still see some some holdouts and with huge pressure from all over the place, people making decisions, not because it's the right thing to do, but because there's pressure to just revert back to how we used to do things. Yeah. Even though once you, mm. it's like once you experience that pod or you've gone to Disney and had that, that ride, now coming to your city and having that pod experience, like you can't go backwards, the, right? The genie's it's, out of the Now model. it's become a luxury. It's that's, table stakes now. That's right. You know, it's so really, really uh, interesting door that you're opening there. Um, so there's two big things that we are focused in on a, as an organization globally that we feel needs to be uh, number one addressed and I'll, touch that one first, but the second one needs to be community owned. And this is an opportunity for everyone listening because of all of the macro, micro, internal and external forces. Sometimes certain ideas take off faster than others. I was part of the design build uh, committee at the American Institute of Architects for many years, led it up as their president of the committee that they're actually called PIAs or professional interest areas back then. I always thought it should have been professional interest groups, but then we, we'd be known as the pigs, which <laughs> could be appropriate, but you know, uh, but then we were called the professional interest areas and that's pain in the asses, PIAs, right? So, uh, and leading up design build during those times, um, I was considered the antichrist, you know, <gasps> You're talking about contractors controlling the futures of architecture. I'm going, guys, you know, just have a Snickers bar, hang out, chill, right? That's not what we're <laughs> talking about. Angry. You know, yeah. it's like, uh, you know, what we're doing is design led, design build. That there are architects out there that are good businessmen. There are, they're few and far between, but yes, they're out there, right? And trust us, we know what we're doing. And what we did, we led by example. Um, that delivery methodology right now accounts for what? 16, 70% of all deliverables in the United States under contract. That's huge from zero to that amount over a 30 year period. Um, and that delivery model works with certain types of buildings. Like a, a perfect example would be, des, uh, you know, data centers. You've got to do design build, right? Because it's so right. intricate. It's so integrated, all that stuff. Uh, so building types actually drive a lot of that. A lot of civil is design build, right? It, it just makes sense. Right. Um, so when people are trying to force down because they, in their air conditioned office is saying, I think we need another acronym and they come up with IPD and Kumbaya and all this other bullshit. No, that's not, that's not the show, right? Um, you're right. trying to force an idea onto something that it won't find its time because you don't understand the real localized way that this works. That's why design build worked. Construction management. That grew out of the architects kowtowing to the insurance companies and lawyers saying that we want to give up our rights of site supervision. That did not, though, give up that the owner still needed those eyes. Thus, construction management grew up out of the 1970s change to the AI contracts, right? So, and it gave at, rise to a whole inspection arm, third-party inspection. Oh, God, yeah. It came right? out of that same thing, like where the inspector is trying to act as if 
they are the designer. And it's just not the same because the incentives are just totally different. The quality in that system, Paul, has not gotten better. Like, and those types of structures built in that different mindset where I'm talking like Hammurabi's code, where the the architect, if if you're building, the the designer's building failed, your first child would be put to death. (laughs) Like that type of skin in the game. I mean, it's extreme skin in the game, but... But people came at these things in such a different way. Well, just look because at because the, they were. But look at the Medici's, right? And look at the Medici's right. com, com, coming out of the Dark Ages, about how they inspired great design, and it was expected. You're right, and you're right. You know, throwing of you know your 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 firstborn into the fire because you made a mistake. You're going to pay attention a little bit, and yep. and, and and start to challenge yourself and and the norms. So that's why when I'm looking now at uh, the reemergence of this idea of offsite construction for all the internal and external reasons that have been talked about and talked about and talked about. I've been watching it have premature growth and then go back down. Uh you know the mobile home market. Okay, you know it's there. Uh and uh you know uh you know worker. Yeah, just you're just jumping homes. over that one, Paul. Like well, the mobile home market. Well, but you, you know what? Over? It's legitimate. That's part of our industry, right? right? You know, it's like having the red-headed stepchild. They're part of our industry. We're putting yes. that on the planet Earth and it's a magnet for tornadoes. That's what was, it does. I was just I was thinking that as soon as you said it. I'm glad you said it out loud because I was going to go there, Paul. So, yeah, well, j- 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 just like Mater said, right, in cars. Right? I'm happier than a tornado in a trailer park. So, uh, you know. Now, no, nothing wrong with trailer parks, and I will back off that statement because of one big thing. Um, it's shelter. There's still a noble cause to that, and you cannot discriminate that. If people do not have the socioeconomic means, they still have to have a sense of, of pride of where I live. It's my home, and right. people make the home. The designers don't. And if that is something that we can uh, not poo-poo, and, uh, and I will apologize because you know it's not about glossing over. It's that that's what that delivery mechanism was known for. It's now being challenged again. And I love the fact that because of lack of labor, because of uh, different organizations trying new things, uh, just look at Turner. Turner actually went through an exercise, and Turner's a, a great poster child for this because they're an organization, high quality, uh, that has been uh, that were known, especially in the New York area, for tenant fit-out work. So it was a great place to get your career started as a on-site project manager, that type of thing. Um, uh, you, you know, as, as we talked about, that's where they're known as the Turner Tots, right? Because you know you came out Turner of that. I used to be one. There I mean, you go. just coincidentally wearing a blue shirt right now, just by pure accident. <laughs> and, and and for those that don't know, like we joke in the industry, there's even LinkedIn groups for Turner alumni because. Every third person you meet in general contracting at one point in their career worked for Turner. And and it's a graduation ceremony. Me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's part of the education experience, right? Um, but they actually pushed into high gear over the past, I'd say, 15, 20 years where they are doing these superstructures. They are doing the meaty, meaty, meaty work, uh, not just TI. What's good about that and, and that growth trajectory uh, is that they've also integrated technology into the conversation at a very high level. And they've got some great, great tech teams that are involved and, and leadership over there. What has really impressed me, though, is that they took the time just before COVID hit to start to address the nomenclature of, well, we know that we are working with hotels, let's say, right? And the hotelier that they were working with were asking them to look at the DFMA process or the design for, for manufacturing and assembly. Right. Because they wanted to look at certain types of offsite construction, be it prefab, modular, 
blah, 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 blah. So they chose the term offsite construction, uh, which helped them internally start to group together people going, okay, I know what you're talking about. Because I didn't have to think, well, he's saying prefab, but that's really this. So they formed the definition first. And then they went from top down and bottom up in order to get the buy-in. We did something very similar. uh, And what we're looking at right now that with our projects like Neom, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, uh, the largest project in the world, it's $500 billion budget to start. That's phase one, right? And we're building a new country from scratch. Uh, right now, I'm going to be going from zero to 8% of all deliverables in the next 10 years being DFMA. You think about that on that project. That's huge, huge shift in a very short amount of time. And a lot of that is going to challenge our industry. You may not think that you're going to be affected by it, but you will. And it's not so much that you will be doing factory work. It's that you, where you are with your stake and your role in, in the process of delivery, you will be affected either through labor, be it through contract cost, be it through uh, actually taking in product. So what we're doing uh, is we're going to show that uh, we're entering uh, two markets after leaving the Chinese market with our factory in Shanghai. Uh, we were manufacturing 250 square meter homes, approximately 2,500 square foot homes that were absolutely aesthetically beautiful, finished flat packed, not volumetric, because we joined it in the in the field. We found that uh, when you do not projects, but products, you have to have flexibility for the field. So that's why we felt the flat pack was the best way of going, which means that we had to have the best joining systems in the world, which we found. Um, so it takes about a week to put these things up. But we were manufacturing finished product, zero defects, zero waste in Shanghai under seven minutes, oh seven minute God. cycle times. Seven now, minute house. Cycle time for the house, right? And that's the big thing I hope people take away from this show is you better learn the term cycle time and own it if you get involved with DFMA because the only thing that counts is cycle time and the reduction of that time because that's how you make your money. It's not, you you have to stop thinking about the amount of projects you're going to get. Like let's say you, you buy a piece of farm, you're going to put up 20 homes. That is not how you get into DFMA because your homes are going to be, sta- you know, d- depending on the sales of those lots, you're waiting on the market. When you productize our industry, you have to make the market. So what we're doing is a twofold attack. Uh, our project, uh, our our company, uh, which was led by David Pay, my my Aussie friend, we uh, he had a company called Concept Modular, which is actually the company that did this. Uh, it got taken over by a state-owned enterprise uh, out of Beijing uh, to take it over because it was too successful. So when you talk about uh, you know why we are trade wars, uh, prime example number one, uh, we were caught in the middle of all that, but we have we still own all the IP outside of the domestic market of China. So we are looking right now uh, at setting up in Dubai. We're finalizing some of the location issues uh, at the port of Dubai because we need to have supply chain in for everything because Dubai doesn't have anything. Turn it around inside a tax-free zone, productize it, and have those products then shipped out as finished product tax-free. That's a great port. Plus, we're in the middle of a high growth area of the Middle East, North Africa, or MENA, right? Uh, we can actually also hit, uh, it, we're kind of like this about it, uh, Eastern Europe, if we wanted to, and of course, um, uh, you know, India. But actively now uh, finding the exact location is probably in Central Florida. Uh, because of the high growth of Jacksonville, Tampa, and Miami, uh, it creates a perfect triangle where we'd be, be producing out of Orlando, uh, all the way from Cape Canaveral into Orlando and right into Tampa would be our our sweet spot. But we're not going in delivering homes. We decided that in, in the U.S. market, uh, instead of taking money out of GC's pockets, how about if we put money into it and get market nice. adoption? 
I like that concept. Paul. So, Keep talking. so what we're doing is saying that everything's modular. Windows, bathrooms, kitchens, just to name a few. And that if we productize this properly in a lean in a lean cycle time, and we get those markets and the, and the specific general contractors to say, I'm going to take a chance in this. I could sell my customer on this, that we would have generic c- components of kitchens and bathrooms with different configurations, of course, right? Because it's all done through BIM, right. which drives our CNC machines, pretty cool, um, which becomes a digital asset. Right of exactly what's been installed, we also sell them on the concept that it's uh, we are doing a fourth utility of IT, um, and that is built into our modules. Which means that, if, in essence, these people are creating massive full-scale Echo Dots. Because as long as I have my IT in there, I can have Alexa be the command for the entire home. Alexa, do I need to change my air filter? Alexa, I have a leak. Who do I call? Da 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 da. Building as a computer. It finally came true for me. From the time of IBM right. as a student, why isn't in- integrated into the home? We're there. Now, here's the now, big piece. You finally piece. got the hard drive in the wall. Good job, Paul. Yeah, finally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I just hope I haven't created an Etch-A-Sketch because it's a little hard to shake the house. And, you know, but that's another. So, so, so what we're doing right now with these components is that we're addressing the local market, uh, both from a subcontractor with certain subcontracting with modules, along with the GCs to say, you could also offer fashion modules. What would happen if we contract with a star architect like Frank Gehry? Say, Frank, give me eight different layouts that you feel are the best of kitchens. We will manufacture those and be kitchens by Frank Gehry, the collection. The GC could come in, put in to that kitchen blowout, a Frank Gehry kitchen for a fraction of what he would usually charge. Still charge the same amount, put money in his pocket. And guess what? He's differentiating himself in the marketplace to his customer. The customer gets a Starkitect designer kitchen, which increases the value of the home for where he could never afford to hire Frank Gehry. Right. That's the model. And it comes defect-free. Defect-free. Frictionless design and construction. Satisfying the customer at a, such a high level, Paul. It's going to be is- so cool. So we're really, so really cool. pumped up about this. Plus, the Florida market, we're looking to explode even more than it is, uh, especially the Jacksonville area. Uh, we're taking a keen look at the mouth of the St. John's River, Mayport, uh, that was at one time the jewel. Uh, we're looking to actually then take it into uh, the next level. It's an opportunity zone. Uh, but we're looking to bring back the Mayport Jazz Festival. Start getting to what the essence of what every place is about. Look at that, like what you had said, the elegance of community. And understand that putting up housing is not the answer. You've got to create the community around that that people value. And that doesn't mean that you create stage sets. Uh, I've been lucky enough to work with uh, Walt Walt Disney Imagineering as an advisor for years and years and years and years. Uh, We actually have a few former Imagineers on staff working on our virtual reality theme park right now in Qingdao, China, which is such a cool project. But what we're finding is... um, these spaces have to be inspirational and delightful. If you, cre- if you can create delightful space, you've done your job because now it has a legacy to those 150, 200-year-old buildings that stand the test of time. Fashion is fleeting, but when you actually do good design, it will stand forever. And we are in the business of forever. Uh, you know, the uh, you know our ability to be a disposable industry has to stop because we can't afford it anymore, which is why this idea of modules being at least as a pathway forward of being able to reuse those modules so that I got a return of investment is real. So with Neom, uh, one, one of our uh, suggested paths forward uh, of, of a demand, because we're building something and hoping they will come, right? But you've got to match certain things like healthcare to the need or the journey mapping of patients, right? So right away, we have to have some sort of medical 
uh, facilities for the workers because people get hurt. Right. But as population increases and needs increases, that's when you go to like more of a regional hospital than to a general hospital. But that's going to take time. But what we figured out is that through offsite construction and modularization prefab, we're able to take certain components and reuse those and reuse those for a lifetime, a true life cycle. Now, all of a sudden, architecture and the definition of physical assets changes because your ROI isn't, uh, you know, taking a life cycle approach where you design a building and it goes all the way through decommissioning. That's like so 2019. You know, it's, it's like, <laughs> what, what would happen if we can take those components and convince the owner? That your return on investment goes on and on and on. It's a never-ending return. That is speaking the language of business. It's speaking the language of finance, which we better get really, really good at because the market's asking for it. I'd mentioned about the digital asset, about how we create these almost uh, di digital birth certificates, both for buildings and components. Where we're focused in on right now, because we have the good fortune to have people that have great amounts of, of portfolios of real estate like our friends in the Middle East with these sovereign wealth funds. What we're going to be launching, it looks like it's going to be either the second or third week in September, is the world's first market for fungible tokens on the blockchain that tie together to physical real estate. The intrinsic value of a $10 million building, I can actually create a securitized fungible token, not on Ethereum and not on Bitcoin, because those are failed attempts, really good pioneering attempts, but they're too damn slow. It's the reason why Elon even goes... I'm accepting Bitcoin. It takes five days for the transaction to go through because of the way the architecture is yeah. set up. There's not central servers. It's a decentralized node network where everyone on the node has to agree. So if you have 21 million tokens with all these miners involved, you're talking about hundreds of millions of computers that all have to say yes in order for the transaction to go through. Who thinks that's a good idea? Now, now if you understand yeah. that blockchain is built upon a gaming metaphor, and as long as you play the game like a pinball machine in an arcade, you get more and more tokens or points. Or it's like going to Chuck E. Cheese. You know, the more tickets you get, you can get that stuffed animal. That's that's the basis of blockchain. When you tokenize something, you can have it as a non-fungible token, which is what everyone loves because it's easy to understand. You can take things like this. These are baseball cards for buildings with stats. Pretty wow. cool, huh? We call them arch cool. architects. We have the entire city of San Francisco with every one of the iconic buildings done like a baseball card. We have it also for... Let's say this is RTKL. We also have uh, SOM, HGA. 25 years ago, we did this. We were way ahead of our time because what we're doing now is making these digital, which means that this becomes digital art, right? With right. the idea of not just having one sponsor like Lee's Carpet or the AIA, this can be on demand. So it's already paid for. Plus, how cool is it to have your building as a baseball card, right? Super uh, cool. And, and we're actually now thinking about doing it as almost like a Pokemon type of thing, where because it, it's going to be a digital app, you can actually walk a city and we'll have Easter eggs and QR codes that'll make it a game, right? And, <laughs> and we, we're having a ball with this thing. But where we're making the most of our money, people want to own this digital version through an NFT. And I'm going, you really want to, you want to give me money for that? Okay. You know, <laughs> I'll take it. But what I'll really switched it. my mind out of the NFT, which is kind of just like a made up world of collectibles, right? Um, is what happens when you tie that together to real real estate that have real value that I'm now tying it together to the digital asset that's securitized and certified by the Security Exchange Commission. We've done it. The SEC has now approved our tokens to be securitized. Why? Because I have a value asset of that $10 million that give it a baseline. So my building information model is now worth $10 million on the blockchain that's securitized. 
Now what do I do with it? Well, uh, let's take our friends over at Epic Games. They have a really cool Nine billion tool. dollar company, right? Uh, and or- growing by the month. Why? Yeah. Probably because of my son on V-Bucks in Fortnite. <laughs> and my son, too. I can't tell you how many expenditure transfers I have to make to Epic Games. Right? Right? Well. They've got it figured out. They, they have it. So talking with uh, with their folks, um, they've actually done this collision of industries. Hollywood with the Mandalorian and their Soundcraft yeah. uh, volume stage, right? Using the Unreal Engine, then using Unreal behind Fortnite. But what's the constant Unreal? So what Unreal does is that it has a Kronos-based standard across the bottom. And what we figured out is that every one of our either pre-manufactured components, our off-site modular buildings, or traditional buildings and infrastructure that we now own as the owner, when we request from our architectural and engineering friends, our, our vendors, I'm not looking for BIM just for facility management operations. I want the entire boatload of ownership of the digital asset forever. You were hired for an instrument of service that was to procure and deliver a physical building. But I'm being a savvy owner. I'm saying, and I want the digital rights. I don't want you to own the digital rights after that instrument of service is done. Because now what I can do with it is I can now go to Epic Games and imagine in season, season seven, when my son and, 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 your, and your children are flying into like parachutes into Fortnite Island because every adventure starts that way, right? But right. before that, in the lobby, what are they doing? They're looking at skins. They're looking at weapons. They're looking at all these things to be the cool person on that team to have their adventure. Well, what would happen in that adventure that you're not flying into Fortnite Island, but you're flying into Times Square, Tiananmen Square, Trafalgar Square, your neighborhood, based upon the digital assets that we have now licensed to Epic Games as a form of V-Buck transaction, another revenue stream. Last year, sorry, last year, in April of 2021, Fortnite, cleared revenue-wise, revenue, $1.2 billion in V-Buck transactions. It's only going to grow from there. So I have a $10 million uh, uh, valuation on that one asset. I'm now licensing it to the number one gaming platform in the world. And every time it's used, it's it's, it's like every time a song is played by the Beatles, the Beatles, you know, company gets gets a penny. We're using the same damn model. The intrinsic value of the digital asset over time will have more value than the physical real estate itself. Let me say that again to all the architects and engineers out there and all the contractors. Digital representation of the physical asset itself will have more value over time than the physical real estate itself. We're talking about infinite growth as opposed to God only made so much dirt on the planet Earth. So you have a finite resource and an infinite resource tied together through the blockchain. Now, what gets really cool about this, and this is where my head starts to spin, our virtual reality theme park in Qingdao, we're now basing a lot of the transactions for, for, for food and beverage and merchandise, because that's where you make a lot of money in theme parks, because you have a captive audience. Uh, we're taking the same model from Disney dollars from back in the day. Now, with Disney dollars, what they accounted for, and the, the numbers are in and around People will spend 13% more on food and beverage and merchandise by using monopoly money, right? Because it's not real. And they don't want to go through the process of transacting it back to real American dollars. So they'll just spend it as they're leaving the theme park, right? On stupid stuff like sombreros and stuffed animals and all sorts of things, right? So we're taking the same model by saying we want to create an electronic currency, a digital currency that represents the RMB, their Chinese, uh, you know, dollar. And we will increase amount of food and beverage and merchandise, but we're going to base the value 
of whatever we're going to call this thing based upon real estate, real estate backed digital currency. For the first time, we have the control to do it. We got the approval from the government. We're going to see how it works. If this works the way that I think it is, Bitcoin, Dogecoin, which by the way is that Bodie McBoface of digital <laughs> currency, you know, Dogecoin, <laughs> all this stuff goes away overnight because my mom, who's an immigrant from Ireland, understands real estate. You buy it at a certain price and hopefully you sell it for a higher price. Real estate 101. She can understand digital currency when it's tied to real estate. And that's the big picture about what we're looking at, that architects and engineers need to think, yes, about all the senses for the physical design. But your physical design, if you're really going to do a digital twin, you better start thinking about how people work inside of the matrix. Because what works in reality may not work in the digital world. You may need to rethink how the physical world's architecture is actually delivered because it works better with more people walking through your design than anyone ever would through your physical design. So you're being challenged now that your design is no longer about this earth. It's about the metaverse. And the fact that Epic figured out that they could hook together Hollywood to gaming and now with us to real estate, that tie together is all based upon those standards. And those standards can create a federated metaverse meaning that every one of our projects now can be tied together so that you seamlessly walk from experience to experience digitally. This is the first germination that I've seen for real tied to real real estate uh, that is creating the equivalent of the Oasis out of Ready Player One or the Matrix. And we're right there. So this federated universe is uh, metaverse is really where I think we have a threshold that we need to sort of lock arms together and go, let's hold our breath. I don't know where the bottom of the pool is, but holy shit, is this fun? <laughs> Absolutely. Paul, I love how comfortable you've become with being uncomfortable. If people are listening to this, Paul, and watching this, where is a great place for them to go to learn about all of these concepts that you're dropping down on them that might be the first time? What do you recommend to people to learn more or to get in touch with you? Oh, well, oh, yeah, to, well, to get in touch, uh, it's just the digitgroup.com, the digit group. It stands for, um, that's what TDG stands for. Um, it's a poor man's version of a website, and I purposely do that. If I spent more I time. I thought it's designed, designed in Nashville. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> although I live in Memphis, I spent a lot of time in Nashville. Uh, we're very close with the leadership there and you know, being one of the highest growth uh, ur urban environments on planet Earth still to this day is just remarkable. What's about to be announced, I'm not sure if it's public knowledge, so I may get in trouble, but you know, that's my middle name sometimes. Um, I'd rather ask for forgiveness than permission, uh, is that Oracle is about to make their announcement that they're moving all of their operations to downtown Nashville. That complements the 10,000 job move by Amazon out of Seattle to Nashville. This whole thing about HQ2, it's all bullshit. Mm -hmm. That's just suits. <laughs> You know, and, mar and marketing people where the real work is happening. And we're talking about Amazon Prime, uh, Amazon uh, Alexa, Amazon uh, Logistics. Uh, they just, uh, you know, Nashville Airport just doubled its size because they need now to compete against Memphis because Amazon's going after FedEx. They're making a big play where Oracle now uh, is moving into an opportunity zone that uh, right smack in the middle is where the Tennessee Titans play football. They're going to surround this campus wow. around the football stadium. So God knows, but that's it, it should be a lot of fun. But just those two companies, Oracle and Amazon, you know, they're what's great about them coming in from a humanistic standpoint or humanitarian aspect is that they're putting, you know, upwards of a hundred million dollars into the edu the public education system. 
And it makes all the sense because if they're moving their families there, they want to have a high level of good quality yeah. education. So it's amazing when you start to see these revitalizations and in the case of Nashville, changing its stripes from being a two-dimensional place where you went for honky-tonk and country western to now a major place for tech, for uh, other forms of entertainment. Jeez, they have an NHL team in downtown Nashville, hockey. <laughs> Like, like, wow. Yeah. So, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a changing generation. Um, I'm liking this, this 2.0 look at, at urban environments, specifically here in the U.S., because we don't have to, again, have that inherited conversation that everything is designed around the automobile. The reason why we got into the, uh, the public transportation business as a real estate developer is that I went to the large EV manufacturers, you know, the Tesla's GM, uh, Dialmer, Toyota, and I asked them, uh, you know, do you have a fleet? system that we can choose from uh, that will eventually become autonomous. And they said, uh, well, you know, we got a driverless car. You're not listening. You know, you're, you're, you're only exacerbating the problem. So, you know, this reimagining of the pop-up cities that make up North America uh, is really heartening. We do have forces of evil out there uh, that do not want that. They'd rather see us go back to, uh, you know, being more like the Amish, which would be fine. Yeah. But, you know, it's a place in the world for the Amish too. But in the in the order of progress as, as human beings um, and the and the handing of the torches to these younger generations that are like your three students that are really thinking through this and getting emotionally involved um, is going to come down to trust. And that's a very, very difficult thing to give to someone. Um, and it's another thing to also can easily be taken away. Sometimes we think of trust, uh, why we put, you know, contracts in place. And that's what our industry is all about. It's why we have general contractors, right? It's all about the contract. Uh, even right. those are being, uh, reimagined, uh, especially when you start seeing things like Ethereum, uh, that is based upon smart contracts, right? And how the right. if then statements make a lot of sense inside of our industry to create more transparency. But what you're going to get the biggest pushback is are the people that are uh, making money off our inefficiencies. And they're not doing it on purpose. It's just the way their dad and their granddaddy did it. In today's world, uh, you know, things are shifting. And that's part of the digital transformation where people that thought that they had it made by doing things a certain way, all of a sudden, you know, it's the equivalent of no one wanted to put the guy that was shoveling coal into the locomotive out of business, but it happened. So right. I expect in this next generation, uh, entire sectors of our industry that uh, just become irrelevant. Not that they don't have work. Like I said, it's a place in the world for the Amish too. It's just the trends are going to pass by them. And sometimes that's a good thing. I think our forest fire is well underway. Um, a lot of the old wood is bright. going away. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and, you know, and part of that's also nature, right? I mean, you know, God bless some of the people that I've known through my career that helped me, uh, you know, Harold Adams, Art Gensler, these amazing figures that brought us to this stage. I can guarantee you they're looking down from heaven on us and saying, now it's your turn. What are you going to do with it? Oh, man, I love that. Just got to say one more time. Paul, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Very special thanks to my guest. I'm Felipe Engineer Manriquez. The EBFC show is created by Felipe and produced by a passion to build easier and better. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody. Let's go build. <laughs>